All right, so we are in chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be talking about the human mind today. The human mind is a fascinating study in contrasts. On the one hand, it is amazing to think of some of the things that we have been able to understand about life. Man has figured out amazingly how to remove the vital organs from one person who has died and put them into the body of somebody else who is still alive but is not completely well. In order to do this, we not only had to learn how the immune system works to defend us from foreign diseases and germs, but we've had to find a way to work around that very important immune system so that the human's advanced immune system doesn't work against the organs that we have transplanted into people. It's amazing that we can save lives this way. We have found a way to press beyond the natural limits of gravity that hold us to this earth. We've sent human beings into space to collect data beyond the scope of our own planet's surface and to use that data to develop better, support, um, better life support systems, to advance our understanding of metallurgy, and to see that there are more questions that we hadn't even thought to ask yet about the universe that we are residents of. The human mind is able to compose beautiful symphonies They've imagined brilliant solutions to everyday problems, and they've invented chocolate. <laughs> the mind of man can do some amazing things. And yet for all the wisdom that we have amassed and for all of the mental power that man seems able to wield, there are still some very clear limits to what we can accomplish with our minds. Today we live in a very modern society, and yet more than 10% of the world's population still suffers from chronic hunger, while the rest of the world throws away enough unused food every day to fill lakes. I've heard somewhere between 30 and 40% of all the food that Americans prepare to eat gets thrown into the trash. We can see that the atom now is the smallest and most basic building block of life, but we are still at a loss to explain how all of those atoms and all the molecules they form and all the cells that they form, how do these things hold together to create a cohesive, self-aware unit that we call a living creature? We don't know. We can't fully understand it. No matter what we learn about ourselves and our environment, we cannot find a way to overcome our own simple sinfulness, the nature that inspires us to do damage to one another and to treat God with contempt. And so today we will consider not what man can know, but what he cannot know. King Solomon will help us to think about the limits of man's wisdom today. So if you're not already there, we're in Ecclesiastes 8. We're going to read verses 16 through 17. Remember as we read that Solomon was the wisest person in the world at the time that he wrote these words. If you're skeptical about that, consider the fact that he wrote this book we're studying 3,000 years ago. What else are you reading recently from 1000 BC? Not a whole lot. But his wisdom has survived the ages and is still completely relevant to us today. God uniquely gifted this man with a very special intellect and inspired his heart to write these things which we will consider this morning. So we are going to be reading, starting in verse 16 of chapter 8. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, I'm sorry, I think I'm, oh, that's the right one. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. 
Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Mankind is in many ways baffled. About what? About the work of God. The work that is done under the sun. Now remember that phrase, under the sun, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes refers to everything that goes on in the sphere of earth. Everything that happens, everything that God does, all the ways that he fulfills his will in our creation, that means the work of God. So the work of God should be understood as the sum total of all that God has accomplished and the reasons behind all that he is doing. Mankind has a burning desire to know why God put us here, how he has been working in our lives, and what we might do to experience fulfillment and contentment as we live. There's a yearning in the heart of man to grasp these very great and broad concepts, but we are eventually met with frustration when we try to get a handle on them. And so as the writer of Job says in chapter 11, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than the heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Try as we may to observe and to analyze the complex ways and intentions of God. The vastness of His nature and the scope of His activity far surpasses the human mind's ability to process and understand. Solomon confesses here that no amount of our work will solve all of these deep questions that linger in our mind about existence and purpose. It's not a matter of just simply trying harder. It's not a matter of exerting more focus. Philosophers and theologians the world over have dedicated their lives to the task. Great men and women have set themselves to the sole purpose of trying to answer the questions of why and how only to find out that the more they come to know, the more they realize they do not know. The work of life is specifically God's work. And God is an infinite being. There is no end to what He knows. There is no limit to the good that He can do. And so our finite intellect does not have the bandwidth to process the ever-expanding work of the Almighty. Likewise, no amount of time will afford us the opportunity to unravel all of God's mysteries. Full comprehension is not on the horizon, friends. It's not a matter of just getting older and learning by experience, and then finally you'll understand it all. There is much that age and experience cannot tell us. Solomon points out that neither, night, neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, indicating the restlessness that man experiences as he mulls over these mysteries on his, uh, that are on his mind as he lays his head down to get rest. He thinks about them in his waking hours. He lies awake at night, unable to sleep as he tries to make sense, but the answers do not come. We heard something similar to this in chapter 2, verse 23, when Solomon wrote, For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity, says the preacher. Solomon very, like, very likely experienced this conundrum firsthand. Though his intellect was unmatched, and though God had made him exceptionally, supernaturally intelligent, so many of the riddles of God remained unsolved to him. Even if we could conceivably grasp all that he has done, God continues to be ever working and ever moving in his creation. His mind is capable of keeping a pace uh, that we cannot keep up with. 
a good portion of our dissatisfaction with life can be traced back to our inability to understand the work and the ways of God. God has allowed human beings like us to be partially aware of our situation and our condition, but not fully able to comprehend it. And so as 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us, we know, but we only know in part. We comprehend bits and pieces, but there are vital <laughs> lines of information that escape our grasp. We view life as through a mirror that is dimly lit, able to see and make out basic forms and movements, but the details are so often beyond our notice and grasp. We're told in verse 17 of Ecclesiastes 8 that even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. We are so uncomfortable with not being able to know all the things we want to know that many will, will freely claim to have figured it all out even though they haven't. Man often thinks false assurance is better than no assurance at all. But time and effort, though they cannot solve the mysteries of God, can and will always prove that man's claims to fully understand the universe are in fact baseless and empty. Why is man so dissatisfied by the reality that he cannot fully comprehend God and God's ways? It comes down to the fact that man has an aversion to limits of any kind. He does not like to be told no. He does not like to be told that's enough. Man wants to set his own boundaries and borders. Those boundaries and borders that God would set for us remind us of our mortality. And they can't help but bring to mind the vastly superior knowledge of God, which makes our own knowledge feel small and weak in comparison. This aversion to limits has existed since man has existed almost. And we think back to when God first created Adam and Eve and he placed them in a garden, a place of peace, a place where Adam and Eve had great, great opportunity. There were very few bounds upon Adam and Eve in that first existence. The garden was full of all that they needed. They were abundantly supplied for. They had beautiful diversity of fruit to, to feed their needs. They were given dominion and power and authority over things that had been created. Adam was allowed to name them. He was in, entrusted to take care of things in the garden. God had given them the great honor of bearing his, even his own image. They had much to rejoice over, to be thankful for. And yet there was one limit that God placed upon that man and that woman. And it is no coincidence that the limit that was placed upon them happened to be a piece of fruit growing from a tree called the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's the one thing you cannot have, Adam and Eve. You cannot have the knowledge that only I can have. All the other fruit trees were at their disposal. They were only to avoid that one tree. And there's a reason for it. That, the name of that tree is not arbitrary. That fruit represents the fact that only God knows the full totality of what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. Because of the limits of man's ability to understand, we cannot for ourselves discern what is right and is wrong. We need to depend on God's greater intellect for that. God knowing that, forbade man to eat from that tree. And yet the enticing words of the serpent, the discontent serpent, the offer to Eve that if she would eat of that fruit, she would become something greater than God had already made her to be, something as great or even greater than God. 
that if you eat of it, you will be like God. That temptation was too great for her, and it was too great for her husband, Adam, as well. And so they broke that limit. And in doing so, they dishonored the God of creation, the God who had been so generous to them. And everyone who descends from their seed, every human being, has in likewise carried the same burden of breaking God's law, same sin nature. There is one exception to this, and we will talk about him in a few minutes. His name is Jesus, of course. But man, even from the beginning, could not stand to have limits placed upon him. We see it in experiences in the world as well, not just from Scripture, but if you look all around you, man is fixated with things that he cannot understand. He has an insatiable desire to know more about what is superstitious and mysterious. This affinity for magic or the occult, dark things that man has no business entangling himself with. Nonetheless, because it is unknown, man feels a desire to go after it. There's a discontent to having depend on God to give life. And so man, through science, has pressed forward into the murky waters of genetic engineering, even human cloning. In doing so, man has encroached upon the things which he has no business being in control over. That is God's domain. He is the one who gives life and takes it away. And yet man wants nothing of God's limits. Since our nature was stained by the fall of Adam, humanity is naturally in a state of discontent. It cannot stand to be limited. It cannot stand to be ruled. Admitting that God knows all and that we can only understand in part is a confession of a humbling limit within man. But friends, if we're honest with ourselves, is it really a huge surprise that we cannot fully grasp the vastness of Almighty God? If you go outside and look at this great light we call the sun, how long can you stare at it before you must look away? The light of it is too great for you to process. Your eyes can't handle the brightness, and so you look away from it. Just because we cannot sit there and stare at the sun, it does not mean that we are not blessed by the light that it produces. In the same way, though our comprehension of God and the light that he gives us is incomplete, what we can discern of his work and of his ways makes the experience of life all the more sweet to us. What we do know of God is a blessing. We don't need to know all of who God is and all what God wants in order to enjoy the lives that he has given to us. But we have to receive what he is willing to give in humility. Man under the reign of a God who is superior to him needs to think differently about the act of thinking itself. We need to learn to see our understanding in a new light. Having had our eyes open to eternal things by the revelation of a greater God. And so, friends, ask yourself this question today. Why? Why did God give you an intellect? God has created a myriad of wonderful things, amazing life that he has spoken and has bounded forth in, in life and vitality, and yet none of them are quite like humans. We are the only ones that bear his image. We are the only ones who think in a way that is similar to God's thinking. We can Remember things that happened years and years ago. We can think abstractly. We can see things in symbolic manner. We can have compassion to one another. We can think about consequences of our actions that will unfold far down the road. If we take this step, what will that produce in the future? No other creation of God can think quite like you can. Why did God give you that mind? Biblical scholar Charles Bridges says, 
Clearly, Revelation was not proposed to indulge curiosity, but to provide a remedy for man's blindness and misery. God did not make you an intelligent being simply so that you could be on a never-ending quest for something else new and novel. He gave you the intellect you have because you needed that intellect to understand how he would save you by his grace. God doesn't reveal himself to us as a means of satisfying our wandering minds, but as a necessary intervention that saves us from our sin. How does our modern attitude toward knowledge, almost as if knowledge is some sort of, some sort of media, some sort of entertainment that we would grab onto just to occupy our time and to give us something fun to think about. How does that frustrate us in light of our inability to grasp God in full? You see, the gospel is not here to entertain. The gospel is here to save. I, I think about, uh, as a parent, how kids hate to take medicine. So what have we done? We have made it taste like candy, haven't we? We've made medicine taste like candy so that kids will do what they need to do because they don't want to do what they need to do. And that pattern plays out in all of life. There is so much that we don't desire to do, even though it is good for us. And so we try, we put so much effort and energy into making it palatable, making the things that we have to do fun and easy and comfortable. But in reality, we weren't put here on this earth to just experience comfort, nonstop peace and pleasure. Instead, we were put here to understand that fault that happened in the garden must be made right again in order for us to know joy. In order for us to really be content in life, that disconnect between God and man must be remedied. Every one of us has committed sin and fallen short of God's glory. The one exception to that is Christ, the man who was actually God, who came down to take on flesh and to dwell with us, to live in this world that we have broken with our sin and to completely fulfill God's law every step of the way. This is what Jesus did. Jesus did not just do this to show off to us, to make us feel like we were failures. He was perfect because a perfect sacrifice was needed for sinners like us. Every one of us owes a debt to God because we've broken his law. He is the one who gave us life and he deserves our respect and adoration and obedience, but we have refused to give it. So how is that made right? It is made right when Jesus Christ willingly and lovingly offers his perfect and pure, spotless and sinless life on the cross so that all who would place their trust in him might have their sins redeemed by Christ and his suffering, that he would pay the penalty in our place and wash our ledger clean. Rather than appreciating what we've been shown, Human beings develop a restlessness of mind that makes us revel in the discovery of some new thing to the point that we overvalue novelty and undervalue what is sure and proven. And this is a very real challenge to shepherds, to pastors who desire to lead people to the truth because there is from time to time an attitude that comes up. Perhaps you've never vocalized this, but perhaps you've felt this. He's preaching about Jesus again. I already know this gospel. Why, why doesn't he take the time to 
investigate a topic that is new and different? Why doesn't he look at something that's more focused? I want to learn about politics. I want to learn about social justice. I want to learn about these different things that are on my mind. I want solutions to my practical problems. Why does he keep preaching about Jesus? Is that all you ever preach about, Pastor? And my response to that must be yes. Is there any other subject more worthy of preaching? Is there any other topic more inexhaustible than the Savior? If I grow weary about hearing the wonders of my Redeemer, that says far more about me than it does about Jesus. It reveals my poor grasp on just how magnificent God really is. It exposes a lack of appreciation in my heart for the Son of God. It exposes my shallow reading of the complexities of Christ. May we never grow tired of searching out His ways and examining the beauty of His character. And when our hearts long for some other subject to occupy our thoughts, may we remember that any other thing that could only hope to be a dim reflection of the wonder of Jesus never stands up to the light of Christ. And may we repent of our discontent and commit ourselves again to the pursuit of the only object that is really worthy of our affection and attention. That's God's Son. It is essential that we come to the frustrating ends of our own wisdom. That is part of the experience that God has planned for our life. Because it is when we really understand that end, when we see the limits of what we can know, we are faced with our own brevity. And we begin to realize that we cannot hope to fully understand the immortal God, that he is truly greater than we are. What is left when our intellect has failed us, when we see that there is, there is not enough intelligence in us to solve the problems of life? What is left? Faith is left. Faith that acknowledges God is greater than I am. He is greater than me. Faith that acknowledges that to him, I owe everything. Faith that is willing to embrace his superiority rather than fighting against it and trying to control it. Sir Isaac Watts is a a writer of hymns, beautiful work that he's done that has lasted the test of time. I want to read just a short stanza from one of his, his songs. Where reason fails with all her powers, their faith prevails and love adores. It is not until we reach the end of our own intellect that we can truly appreciate the greater intellect of the Lord God who made us. For man, faith should be seen as greater than understanding. It is superior to understanding. It is nobler. Insomuch as its object is God, faith is a more sure and steadfast endeavor than reason. For it rests on an unchangeable, unshakable foundation. Human intellect is dependent upon the data supplied by our senses, senses that cannot always be relied upon, senses that take in information improperly and store it in the wrong places. And it's dependent upon a mind that is a a processor biased by our own subjectivity, prone to interpret data in a way that benefits our appetite rather than sees the world with clarity and truth. Our understanding must constantly battle against our own prejudices, and against popular opinion, and against the loudest, sweetest voices that are trying to propagandize us to think in different ways than we would naturally think. And so faith is the posture of heart 
that man abandoned in order to try and live apart from God. And he does that to his own destruction. Can we regain what was lost in the garden? Can we live in a relationship with God that is based more on faith and trust in him than it is on the information we have collected for ourselves? What could give us the power to move mountains? The scripture tells us it's faith. How are we saved by God's grace? The scriptures tell us it is through faith. It is in faith that we cling to Christ and rejoice that he is our shepherd. Knowledge apart from faith cannot hope to be much better than an optimistic charade, which ends in confusion and loneliness and inevitably, apart from God, has to end in judgment. Consider this, friends. Because of the limits of our human understanding, man is better served by being kept in the dark regarding certain things. It is actually good that God does not reveal all truth to us because we just don't have the capacity to handle it. Now, I want to give you a couple of very practical examples of this, how God gives you just what you need and not more than that and why. The first one has to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. We have read that Jesus came, he took on flesh, he joined a human nature to his divine nature, that he was willing to suffer and die for us, and he rose on the third day. We have read that he ascended to be with the Father, but before he left his disciples behind, he said, do not despair, I will return for my bride. I will come back for my church. And so we have this expectation, and part of that is on display in the Lord's table today as we're going to be experiencing uh, the Lord's Supper. We are thankful for the bread which represents Christ's body, and the juice, which represents the blood that he shed for us. But the Lord's Supper points back to an action that is tied to a promise in the future, that we know that Christ will return for his church, and so we can have great hope and expectation of that return. But how many of us wish we knew when he was coming back? How many people have, have jumped through intellectual hoops trying to mathematically discern through obscure passages of Scripture just when, or at least the season, when Jesus is going to return. You can look all you want, friends. God has made it as clear as he can through Scripture. You will not find the date. And there is good reason for that. Why has God, our Father who loves us, left us in the dark about that fact? <clears throat> Consider for a moment how you would live differently in faith if you knew that Jesus was coming back, but it wasn't going to happen for a thousand years. What if the date was just clearly scribbled in the pages of Scripture and preserved for all time and you knew that it was going to be a millennium before Jesus came back for his church? How would that affect the way that you live your life in holiness? We are told in the Scripture that he will return. That fact is sure. We don't know when. And so the Bible says, be ready at all times. Keep your mind and heart tuned to the return of the one you should love the most. Live your life in expectation of that return so that when he comes back, you will not be found squandering your time doing worthless things. That you won't be found in temporary disobedience, not thinking that your father in heaven is going to see what you do because he's not back yet. Think about how much of an impact it would have on you in a negative sense if you knew the date. Would you be as motivated to go and share the gospel with that person you care about that doesn't know Jesus yet if you knew that Jesus wasn't coming back for a thousand years? It would be so easy to say, well... I know Jesus isn't going to return, so I've got some time. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get around to it. When the, when the door opens and the planets align, I'll share the gospel with that person. 
But we don't have that, that benefit, friends. Christ could come back at any time. If you love the people that are around you, and if they don't know Christ, share Jesus with them. Tell them what has transformed you. Give them the love that is on your heart. They, they have every right to reject it, and that's fine. We're not shoving Jesus down anyone's throat, but we care about people enough to give them the truth. Do not wait. Christ could come back before this service is over. Have you thought about that? There's a reason why Jesus keeps us in the dark on these things. We can't handle that information yet. Let me give you another example of this. We uh, were celebrating baptism last week. We talked about how some traditions see baptism differently than ours, and uh, we gave some reasons as to why we disagree with them. Some of those traditions have to do with the idea of what happens to a little one who dies and has not been baptized. Does that disqualify them from heaven? Are they not considered a part of God's family? So this is a bigger question that has been on the minds of many believers. What happens to a little one who dies before they get to what we might call, some call the age of accountability, the age when they can decide for themselves whether they want to follow Jesus? What happens to those little ones? What happens even worse when, when a baby is stillborn and never gets to draw a breath in this world? Or even worse, what happens when someone through hardship and deceit, decides that they need to end the life of a child before that baby has even a chance to live. What happens to that child? You can search all of God's scripture. You will not find an answer to that question espoused clearly. We don't know. God has chosen not to give us that information. And that might be frustrating to us at times. Now, I can tell you my opinion on the matter I can tell you that I know a God of grace and a God of love, a God who never turned away the little children when they came to him. In my heart of hearts, I believe that anyone who dies before they can truly understand their sin in the way of the gospel, I think that God will have mercy on them, but I can't teach that as scripture to you. And there's a reason why it's not plainly put in the word. Think about this for a second. Had God shared with us that anyone before that age of accountability, whatever it might be, who passed away would go straight to heaven to be with him, someone, maybe even with good intentions, would, because of our twisted minds, justify the slaughter of children as a means of sending them to heaven and preventing them from the chance of never accepting Jesus and going to hell one day. You know that there would be problems with that if that was written clearly in Scripture. God knows we can't handle that truth, can, can we? That is something he doesn't want to put before us. So he gives us not everything we want to know, but what we need to know. And what we cannot handle, he keeps from us. And this is not cruel. This is not inconsiderate. This is loving and good. I believe that our God, for our good, has left many topics hidden and unexplained to us. The scripture is largely silent in some areas. Questions which the word does not answer are questions then that we should not bother ourselves with too much. And I want to share a passage that reminds us of one of the strong doctrines of how we should believe in Scripture. It's from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. This is God's word about his own word. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God speaking through Paul 
about his own scripture. And how does he describe it? He describes it as enough. Good enough for us. It is all that we need. He's not just speaking of the Old Testament, which was already canonized. He's also speaking of the New Testament that was being formed even as Paul wrote those letters. But he's telling us that what God has revealed to us is enough for our righteousness. It is enough to equip us for every good work. We don't need more than that. What a God we serve whose mind's eye sees the lay of the land before the land is even land, who knows precisely the results of every permutation of chance and circumstance and has in his infinite boundless knowledge chosen to allow life to play out just like this, just as it has. Every circumstance in your life was done the way it was supposed to be done. God knew where he would bring you and he knew the path he would take to get you there so that his will might be accomplished exactly so and his great name might be exalted to his glory but also to the immeasurable benefit of his elect. We are so blessed that a God who knows all things would orchestrate time like this, would work all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What a blessing upon his people. So let us trust in the word. Let us not fall to that, that voice that says, oh, God has given us very good things in the scripture. Oh, but you have some hidden stuff that you didn't get. God didn't give this to the church for many years, but we have it now. We've got this extra book. No, God's word as canonized is what we need. Don't, don't give in to this, this lie that people will often give you to say, well, this part of scripture is good but you don't need these other parts anymore. This is all that you need right now. This section of scripture. No, all of God's scripture is God-breathed and worthy of our time and attention. And it is what we need to be thoroughly equipped to serve him and follow after him. Instead of giving us endless volumes of information and answers to relatively irrelevant questions, God shines just enough light upon our human condition that it is possible for us to see that faithlessness is foolishness, and that believing what God says is quite rational. Just enough for us to have confidence beyond a shadow of a doubt that faithlessness is foolishness and that believing what God says to us is quite rational. This admission of our intellectual limits today, by the way, friends, is not a, it's not a formal surrender to the prospect of knowing anything. It's not Christians saying, we, we just have to have faith like little children, which means you don't have to learn anything. Just believe whatever God says and don't think about it. No, that's not the case at all. Remember that the word again and again calls us to value knowledge and wisdom, to desire it, but to have the right attitude toward it. And that's key for this morning. What is our heart's attitude toward knowledge? Psalm 111 verse 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in Him. If you delight in the Lord, you should be studying Him. You should be seeking him out. The, the wonder of his beauty and his brilliance should make you want to gaze upon him as much as you can. Psalm 107, 43, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 119, 30, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. God doesn't want us to stay simple-minded. He wants us to fix our mind on the things that really matter in life and to trust him as he grows us in knowledge and wisdom. So Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Some of the greatest discoveries in the history of science have been made by men who professed the creator 
and trusted the Lord God who founded their understanding of the natural world on what he had revealed in his scripture. We have also the example of the Berean brethren who became an example to us in exercising our minds in the book of Acts. Chapter 17, verses 10 and 11 says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. That was their common practice. They would preach to the Jewish people who had a background in Scripture first, and then they would expand their mission to reach the Gentiles, those who had no background in Christ or in the Lord God. In verse 11, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So what made the men and women of Berea more noble than those who were in Thessalonica? They didn't just say, oh yeah, we'll buy that. They took all the things that were said in the sermons and they went back home. And they said, well, let's see if this matches what God has revealed to us because this is scripture here and we know that scripture is true and we want to make sure that what Paul said matches this scripture. And so as these Bereans went and they studied they were, they were thoughtful on these things. They, they compared the standard to the preaching and they said, look, this matches up. This makes sense. And they were considered more noble for their eagerness to know. Is not meekness commended among God's people? Meekness is such a often understood, uh, misunderstood word. It, it doesn't mean weakness. It means willingness to be taught, willingness to be trained and shaped James 1.21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So we should have a desire to learn, a desire to grow, not a, a laziness that is content to just know the very basics of what God has shaped, saved us with, but a desire to understand his doctrine well and to be able to communicate it, articulate it in ways that others can understand it. To be meek means to be teachable. And the one who doesn't bother to seek wisdom because he has discovered that he can't know everything expresses not meekness, but stubbornness. Almost like a bitter child who if he can't have all the things he wants, he doesn't want anything. Let our hearts never be shaped that way. Many arrogant men have discovered complex truths but have gone to the grave with zero grasp on the most important truth that we need. They didn't know their sin or the weight of it. They didn't know their inability to fight against the sin which damaged their relationship with God. They knew not the Savior that God had provided for them, a means by which their sin, which they couldn't pay for themselves, might be paid for for them. And now their impressive intellect exists only in a state of suffering and darkness. Forever they will be plagued by the reality that their intelligence was no savior to them. And that for all that they had been able to come to know, they made the fatal mistake of ignorantly turning their minds away from the most worthy subject of their intellectual faculties, Christ Jesus. Are we ready to agree with Solomon regarding the state of man's mind? Are we willing to admit our intellectual limits and to rejoice that God has not allowed us to sulk in the pits of darkness, completely unaware of his love and mercy, absolutely oblivious to sin and our greatest threat, and then also oblivious to Jesus, our only Savior, God has not left us in that state. Instead, he has shined light upon us that together like this, we might learn about him, that we might grow in our understanding of him, and that we might abide in trust and faith all the more. 
before the Israelites went into the promised land of Canaan. God would shortly part the waters of the Jordan River and allow them to walk through on dry land again as he had done with the Red Sea when he took them out of Egypt. Before he did this, Moses prepared the people. And in a long exposition of God's covenant to them, he said these words which are found in verse 29 of Deuteronomy 29. He said, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now I know he's speaking to old covenant people and the covenant we are in is different in many ways, but the principles here parallel that the secret things still belong to the Lord, that he knows much that we don't and can't know, but he has not kept us in complete dark, but instead he has revealed to us many great things about his universe, about salvation, about our own hearts and what he has revealed we have a responsibility to try and know. Many things pertaining to our God remain secret and hidden away from our view. But it's not God's prerogative to tell us what and why. We must learn to live with this arrangement because even in our glorified state, with all of our sins stripped away from us and the hindrance of the world far behind us, even when we get to heaven, we're not going to know everything about this God because he's just too great to know. But not all is a mystery not to the people of God at least, to those whose sin has been washed away by the blood of the Lamb, a great deal of light has been revealed. Let us embrace that light and know him as we can. Would you please bow your heads with me as we close in a word of prayer and then transition into our time of communion. God, we thank you for the grace that you have given us to see our limits. And we pray, God, that if it was hard for us to hear your word clearly telling us that there are things we cannot know, God, I pray that we would not try to fight against that. Help us to not struggle against your perfect and wonderful rule. You are a good God, a God who cares for us deeply, a God who loved us first. And so I do ask, Lord God, that you would increase our wisdom and cause our understanding to abound, but that we would see the limits of what we can know, not as a true hindrance, but as a means to, by which we see our need for you. God, help us to trust, help us to cling and abide in you in Jesus' name. Amen.